The only way to be happy is for everyone to be made equal. So, we must burn the books, Montag. I value white whale. Show us your crooked jaw. But it cannot stay in the Shire. No. No, it can't. Must I do? It doesn't get eaten by the eels at this time. What? I'm explaining to you because you look nervous. Peace. I hate the word. As I hate hell, all Montagues and thee. And therein, as the bard would tell us, lies the rub. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say that the book is always better than the movie. Now, I disagree for a number of reasons. In fact, I would argue that it is not very helpful or uh, worthwhile to even compare the two. It's comparing apples and oranges. But I would argue that books and movies are probably the best mode of storytelling out there, at least as far as I'm concerned. I'm sure as you've listened to other episodes here on my podcast, you've noticed that I'm always talking about books and movies. I uh, studied film at BYU. I got uh, an MFA in screenwriting from Chapman's film program. And uh, since then, I have been writing novels. I love books. I read all the time, and I love movies. And I can tell you right now that they are very different. Now, an entire podcast episode is going to be devoted to this idea of what are the differences. Um, But I I had to bring that up today because I'm joined today by a good friend of mine, Barrett Bergen. Say hi. Hey, Carson. Good to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. Barrett, uh, he also graduated from BYU. He is a filmmaker and uh, director. And uh, Cryo was, is your first feature or Mm -hmm. your second? No, it's my first feature. So we're going to be discussing a little bit uh, a feature film that, that Barrett is actually in the editing process right now with his team and uh, will hopefully be coming to streaming services everywhere eventually. That's what we're hoping. We have like three distribution plans for how we could sell the film. (laughs) So Barrett, you've sat down with us and really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I watched your film today, uh, Cryo, and it's really intriguing. Go ahead and share share with us a little bit. What's it about? Okay, so Cryo is a, there's a lot of, words describe it. It's a psychological thriller, uh, kind of mur- sci-fi murder mystery, kind of a whodunit, right? And the way that it starts out is five scientists, they wake up from cryosleep. And if you're not super familiar with science fiction, cryosleep is where you're in like hibernation, you know, you're, you're frozen and, and you can kind of stay in a cryogenic chamber for who knows how long it's, it's, it's meant to preserve you, you know? And so this is a, a well-established idea in sci-fi where like maybe you have to travel across space and people get frozen and then they wake up and they're, they're the same age. And, you know, anyway, these scientists wake up from cryosleep. The only problem is they're underground and they cannot remember who they are or why they're awake. They know some things. So there's little, they, they, they can kind of remember their, their skills. Think Jason Bourne knows all his, all his, you know, mo- fighting moves and stuff. So they start to figure out, oh, I, I'm, I'm a doctor. Or, oh, I think I'm a, I'm a biochemist. Like all of this knowledge is coming back to me. And one of them knows quite a bit where he's like, yeah, I think there was someone who was supposed to meet us, the chamber. I helped build the chambers, the engineer. He's like, I helped build the chambers. There was a guy who was supposed to meet us and the chambers have to be open manually. So somebody down here woke us up. Well, the only problem is there's no one else down there and they wander around until finally they find a machete lodged in a door. They open the door and there's blood everywhere, fresh blood, like like 12 hours ago. You know, this blood spilled all over the floor. And now they realize either there's someone down there with them or one of them's not telling the truth about who they are. And so... You know, they're trapped down there too. There, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a staircase and kind of a, a tunnel leading up to a, a, an airlock, but there's all these signs that are like caution, airlock. And because they don't know who woke them up and they don't know how long they've been asleep and the guy who's supposed to wake them up is just not there. They're like, how long have we been asleep? Were we asleep for a thousand years? Is, is the world gone to crap? You know, is there a, was there a nuclear war? Was, is it poison outside? Like they have limited supplies. They're stuck down there and there might be a killer among them. So that's the, that's the setup for cryo. Kind of like a, a clue game a little bit. 
That is a really, really great premise, Barrett. Thank you. And uh, just gets your mind going on the whodunit. Mm-hmm. Lots of different directions, too, that you, uh, hopefully, an audience thinks, where is this going? Which of them? Why, why are they lying? You know, there, there's, there's characters that might not be telling the truth, and what do they have to hide? And, and there are several twists in it, a few twists in it. Quite a few we twists. Will, we'll dance around pretty carefully yes. in this so that we don't have spoilers. But there, So we'll not have too many spoilers, but there will be a little bit. I can almost guarantee you that uh, unless you're paying really close attention, whatever you think is happening throughout the film is not what it seems. Although I've, I've, I, I read something interesting um, pretty recently that said um, you enjoy a book or a film just as much if you spoil the ending first. That, that when they measure it, we, we almost think non-linearly. Mm-hmm. It's why we can handle non-linear stories and things. And so if you know what the ending is and you watch it, you can still kind of enjoy the, the moving toward my that. My sister-in-law is an avid reader and every single book she reads about a quarter of the way into the book, she will flip to the end page and read the end page. I can't imagine doing that. I don't know why she does it, but for her, it it makes sense. And she's just like, I don't want to wait. I will. And she says the same thing. She says she will enjoy the book either way. Yeah. But she doesn't want to wait to find out kind of like the little nuggets there at the end on how it's going to end. So that's interesting, and, and that's a super interesting thought, Barrett. Um, but I will steer us clear a little bit for many of the big spoilers with Cryo. Um, mostly I'm interested in talking to you today, Barrett, uh, uh, as a storyteller. Yeah, before, you, before we go that direction, I'm curious why you were talking about adaptation. I've been looking through my notes here because you probably study this person too, but in, in a BYU film theory class, um, we, we dove into adaptation theory and how important it is not well, I mean, you can do it if you want to, but how limited and, and sort of incorrect it is to compare movies and books because they're two different mediums. And I'm trying to find, I'm desperately trying to find who the theorist was because I want to, I want to credit this person. But it was, but out of all the film theories and some, I was a little bit more like, okay, I don't, I don't know. That's kind of a stretch. This, this theory really resonated with me in that you, you don't want a film to be just like the book. You really don't. It's not yeah. going to be a good film because it needs to... It needs to fulfill the, um, I don't know, the, the strengths of the medium. Yes. Right? Absolutely. Books and, and movies have different strengths. And so uh, a perfect ad- adaptation to me is um, either, there's two of them. I wrote a paper on one of them, uh, The Prisoner of Azkaban, the Harry Potter movie, which I think goes mm. a different way in some ways than the book and becomes its own thing. You want it to be its own thing and be in the spirit of what it's adapting. And then I wrote a paper on this, The Prestige, which I think is a better, like it improves upon the The Prestige was based on a book. I didn't know that. Yeah, quite a bit different than the book. And if you look at the two, the book is what it needs to be or The Shining or something like these. Mm-hmm. These are all, you know, Stephen King went hated the adaptation yeah, of The Shining so much. He remade Stanley Kubrick. his own and it sucks. Like it's really bad and it's exactly. But he likes it because it follows the book exactly. And I yes. have to actually say something. This is going to be heresy for all, all yeah, my know. YA fans. Not that I have a ton of YA fans. <laughs> um, but I was actually a little disappointed in the Hunger Games adaptation, oh, the first book. I've never seen it. It stays very, very true to the book, and a lot of people love that. And I know a lot of fans who just adored the book loved how close it stayed to the, to the, the book. But I felt like it didn't really bring anything new to the, to the art form of mm. cinema. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'm just being too high Here it is. about I found that. It. Dudley Andrew, the film theorist Dudley Andrew, proposed that perfect fidelity to a source of adaptation is fruitless because you will just have two of the same thing. Rather, a film reaches its full potential when it borrows source material as a springboard to new ideas. Yep. And that's really cool. And and I love that. Uh, There are some key differences between books and movies, though. And like I said, in uh, a future episode, I want to dive into this super deep. But one of them being that books are able to have breadth yeah. And depth. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. You you can go deep. You can spend forever on what a character's thinking about and how they feel about mm-hmm. it. And you can keep it interesting. And the viewer, the reader, isn't in a hurry. Mm-hmm. Like they, they don't, when people who are into books, they like reading. And so they aren't necessarily like dying to just be like, hey, let's move forward. Let's move forward. 
a movie is very, very different type of storytelling because you have two things at your advantage that you don't have in books. And one is images. Right. Pictures worth a thousand words. Yes. You know? And it's because the moment you see an image, uh, an emotion is evoked mm -hmm. without spending any time on it. So the pacing of a movie can go so much quicker. You've seen my TikTok. I've been doing these, these comparisons where I'm, I read the book and I show the scene from the movie. And I'll tell you what happens more often than not. The book is slow. Uh -huh. Like it takes its well, even, time. Even the 12 hour cut extended edition of Lord of the Rings cannot possibly meander like the books can. You right, know? right. And they it still really have shouldn't. to cut out so much. And I would actually say that when you were talking about perfect adaptations, I would say that Fellowship yes. of the Ring is close to perfect. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I would have some arguments about Two Towers and Return of the King maybe, mm -hmm. but Fellowship is near perfect and it is very different yeah. from the books, but it kept the spirit. Right. They tried the so books. hard to, to, and I love that focus that they put. They tried so hard to respect the spirit of Tolkien and of, you know, Tom Bombadil's gone, but they take his lines and they put them other places yeah. and, and they kind of do things to, to reverence the source material. So you're not trying to just, you know, and you can tell sometimes you can tell when you're watching a movie where they just change stuff to do it and to be clever. And it's like, come on, like, Okay, we see, you know. Yeah, like um, introducing Tariel in the Hobbit movies, right. I think, was a huge mistake. Whereas in Fellowship, I think it's genius to have Arwen be the elf right. that rescues them. Because in the book, there is an elf that yeah. comes and helps them and saves Frodo. Right. And um, Arwen is a significant figure that we get to see for like one evening in the book. And right. then we never see her again. In yeah. fact, I remember reading her name the first time through, reading her name in Return of the King and being like, have we talked about her yeah. at all the yeah. rest of the books? And it serves the story. It create. I mean, they did everything they could with that love story. And it's still a little bit, a like, little bit lacking. It's kind of in the background, but compared to, they took some of the, some of the lines or something. I, I, I'm trying to get the details right, but from the Silmarillion and applied it to, to Arwen and uh -huh. Aragorn. Just, just to, quotes about the even star. Right. And, how and it that's, never... that's, Talk about respecting the source material. Uh -huh. You're pulling from other places in Tolkien to like, to kind of, you know, fill a gap. support and fill a gap. Yeah. So another thing that movies have that books don't, and, and think with me on this one, because to me it changes everything. And that is actors. Yeah. You, you don't hear about someone being like, oh, let's take that old book and rewrite it. Right. right? Nobody goes back and like redoes. I mean, I mean, there's been like, Jane Austen with zombies and they do a new take on it. And there's, there's a little bit of that, but think about a play. Yeah. Why there's so many, we just know, do it over and over and over. Macbeth or uh -huh. King Lear and uh, you know, King Lear. It's like, have you played King Lear yet? Like it's a, and it's a part of, you know, an actor's experience. Every year we go to the Hale Center theater and see Christmas, Christmas Carol. Carol yeah. And we're always excited to see which person is going to be playing Scrooge because yeah. it changes the entire experience mm -hmm. when you have a different actor in place. Yeah. And that's why we can do reboots and mm -hmm. they can be like, Oh, Tobey Maguire was too, too nerdy. Let's get someone cool in there. And we put Andrew Garfield as Spider-Man and right. it changes yeah. the, the entire dynamic. Yeah. So books and movies, why do I bring that up? Talking about adaptation because they're both good. They're both amazing. And today, while I spend a lot of time talking about books, we're going to be talking about movies a little bit more today because that is Barrett's expertise. Right. Well, it's funny you, you started by talking about adaptation because in some ways, in some ways, adaptation is at least in my opinion, easier. It's hard to adapt something well, but it's easy to know where you're going to go and kind of where you should go. And Cryo is not an adaptation. Nope. It's a completely original uh, idea. And that came with its own challenges. And I, I have a tendency to overcomplicate my stories too and want them to have all these layers. layers. Thanks, Christopher Nolan, who yeah, ruined me when I you know, got addicted to his films as a kid. And So an another thing... Uh, Something that I love about movies and the reason that I think they're such a powerful medium for storytelling is this idea that images and sound can immediately evoke things in an audience that just aren't there in the book. Like the yeah. viewer has to fill the space in a book. Yeah. The reader has to determine everything. In fact, I've read things, had a description, and I've blatantly said, nah, that's not how I'm going to imagine them. Right. I'm going to imagine them 
different. Yeah. And I think everybody does that to a certain extent with books. It's probably movies. why people get bugged with the movie adaptation. It's like, that's not how I wanted to see it. Yeah. But there's a million different ways that people imagine it. So how mm -hmm. could a movie ever? So you just, to me, it's, it's not fair to compare them, compare them as they are. Yeah. But there's one more component to movies that I love. Uh, a writing professor of mine at Chapman talked about uh, movies as story. And that's what I want to focus on today is you as a storyteller, Barrett. And I'm eager to hear your thoughts and where you get inspiration. But this idea of storytelling in movies is different because it's told three times. You write a movie. Yeah. And yep. a screenplay is one way. And we're, that's where I'm going to start. I want to talk about the screenplay of Cryo. Okay. Um, then you shoot the movie and no plan can come into contact with the real world without changing. Mm -hmm. Even a you know, multi-million dollar budget film will have production restraints that demand that the story shift in certain ways. So you shoot the movie and the story is essentially told again through the lens. A lot of people can't handle this. Is, this, is a, this is actually a thing I feel pretty good at but it's when you get so in love with your your script that you're on set and then you freeze because it's like it's not going to work it's not going to work we can't here. shoot it it's it's we're out of time or like that's not going to work in the scene or what we shot before and you have to be able to kind of adapt on the fly a yep. little bit adapting your own work yep so i guess adaptation is is still part you're of looking it, yep. at something you're like okay i see what's on the page how can i how can i make sure this is conveyed the in spirit a, of it, at yes, least, with a, the restraints way. that yeah, we have right. of what can even just what is able to even fit inside the lens at any given moment. Because yep. a lot of times we imagine things, and then you're like, "Huh, I can't fit an entire mountain range in one shot. Do I break uh -huh. it up? Do I like?" There's just a lot that happens in your mind that can't happen for the lens. Yeah. And then finally, the editing process changes everything. It really I, does. you know, Jeff uh, Parkin at BYU, he showed us one of his films. And he showed us a scene where a single frame changed the entire mood of a beat inside mm. that scene. Mm -hmm. And what it was is uh, someone says a line and they seem very, very nice about it. And then just before the camera cuts, they grimace a little and then we <laughs> cut away. And then we know that they're, they're being faked, right. that they're putting yep. up a facade. Yep. But if you cut one frame earlier you're like, oh, they're a nice person. Mm -hmm. And it changes the dynamic of the entire scene. So editing is super powerful. And that might have been an accidental element in the take. Maybe they that were ending the before their performance. And then you get in the editing room and you're like, oh, that helps what we were trying to say yep. you know, earlier. And that was never what you intended for the scene. All of a sudden, the scene becomes the new th a new thing. But you're like, that's way better than uh -huh. it was. And it's you know? golden. Yep. Yeah. And, and that's the other thing about having actors in front of a camera is that uh, variety and chaos and entropy are all going to be folded into your storytelling because things are going to happen that you don't expect. Right? Uh, an actor is never going to deliver the lines exactly the way you imagined in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, or in the screenplay, but let's start at the beginning Barrett Okay. as a writer. Yeah Let's actually go back one more step inspiration Where where do you find inspiration? Um, to be frank well, okay, so I find a lot of inspiration in In the types of like the types of genres that I'm drawn to reflect the inspiration that I find in in life Really really well, right? Okay like cryo's a sci-fi. Sci it's not a very sciencey sci-fi, which I actually prefer hard hard sci-fi. Uh -huh. This is more just kind of dipping dipping my toes into something. But um, but to me, science, technology, truth, um, kind of strange truths about the world. Um, that's one big inspiration. And then, frankly, the other uh, inspiration I pull a lot of ideas from his religion. I okay. really like working religion into my films. In fact, I, I do so despite myself. Like Cryo was never supposed to, to, it's in there. To, to, to put all those religious elements. But then once I started building it, to me, and to me it, it becomes uh, almost like um, anytime I am, anytime I'm exploring a story about uh, religion, I, I can't help but ending, end up putting some kind of uh, you know, and even if it's mythical or mythos or, or mm -hmm. lore or whatever, I can't help but, but 
drip in some scientific elements or some realism, right? Some, 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 like the, the mythological elements, maybe just how they're interpreting it or something like that. And, and the flip side of that is anytime I'm doing sci-fi, I can't help, but it, it like endow it with these religious elements. And, and, uh, to me, it's an obvious, uh, there's an obvious correlation there. A lot of people would go, what what are you talking about? Those things are, are, are totally opposite. But to me, they're kind of two sides of the same, same coin. Religion is the why and science is the how. And, um, whatever truth there is between the two, they parallel each other. And I know I'm not alone in thinking this because the filmmaker Alex Garland does the same thing. Who's, who's, I'm very religious. He's an atheist, but all of his hard sci-fi stuff almost always starts having these kind of, um, religious symbols or parallels. Mm-hmm. Um, he did a film called Annihilation, Ex Machina. He did a show called Devs, which, you know, spoiler alert about Devs if you haven't watched it, but, but Devs ends up actually standing, D-E-V-S, the, 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 the side of this huge company that's like um, exploring determinism and like an alternate reality. Mm-hmm. It ends up standing for, uh, Devs ends up meaning Deus, God, which, which, you know, they're, they're playing God in what they're doing. And so to me, you know, if there is any sort of, uh, divine existence in the universe, it would have to be inextricably, inextricably connected with science. And so to me that, that idea and playing with those kinds of ideas and concepts and meaning and nature and whatnot, and, and what is the, you know, ethical implications of the science that somebody's doing um, is really, really interesting to me. Right, and in Cryo, you have the character that is a faithful character. In a way, yeah, that's I, right. I 100% picked up, because you and I have had conversations about this before, but I was like, okay, this, like, he's, like, holding out. Yeah, that's right. he's like, it'll come, and I just believe that, that's like, right. it's going to be good. He's and that's kind what, of a parallel. And, and the, the interesting thing, though, is that that even if we look at the look at him from as an audience and say that he is misguided in where he's put his faith. Right. Um, because it's not necessarily faith in God. Yeah. I don't think I'm revealing anything. No, no, no. Um, yeah. But because of it, he, he seems to be the one who's able to handle the solitude in the story the best. That's right. Because he's like, it'll work out. I, I know. Yeah. And, and the flip side of that is you have characters playing God or, or blending some of their, of you know, to, 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 me, to me, there's a, there's a particular character that represents doing like the blending of these two things. And I see a side of myself in this character if it were to go down a wrong path. Yeah. Like I'm really tickled by what I wrote, you know, this, these guys lines and whatnot. Never, everybody else who worked on it was like, man, this, this is freaky. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and then the but scientist, like the scientist character ends up being the one who is most afraid yeah, of the right. surrounding world. Exactly. Because he sees the danger. All he sees is the, how it works and not necessarily the why yeah, behind it all. That's right. It's really intriguing. That's right. Um, just, so, just to finish answering your question though, I, the, the, that is my main inspiration, especially as it pertains to cryo, but I love noir as genres, right? I love uh-huh. noir. I love cyberpunk. Um, I get a lot of inspiration from, um, multi-layered stories, twists. Mm-hmm. Um, I find a lot of inspiration in, uh, kind of the ideas of ghosts and the supernatural and the spiritual and all this stuff. You can see how this all mm-hmm. kind of 100%. thriller, psychological stuff, the mind, the mind is fascinating to me. And like what, what, what is in the mind versus what is objectively true and real? And does, do those have to be mutually exclusive, you know? And, and all these things motivate you to write. Yes, absolutely. Tell us a little bit about how cryo came about then. What was the idea that gave it Okay, so this is kind of interesting. Um, one of the actors in, in Cryo, um, Mason D. Davis, he plays the soldier in Cryo. Okay. And he's one of the executive producers on the film. He approached me. Oh, it's depressing how long ago this was. <laughs> but it was, like, it was like in January of 2018. And I had a goal that, that year. I had set a goal. I was like, I want to direct a feature film. And I hadn't graduated from BYU film school yet. I was, I was in the middle of my junior year. But that summer I wanted to direct a feature. And so I put it on Facebook. I was like, New Year's resolution, direct a feature film, which, you know, I should have put finish a feature film because I did direct one. I just didn't, didn't finish it. Be specific on your goals. That's right. But, um, but he reached out to me and said, Hey, are you serious about do this? We, we, we had collaborated before. He was in a movie of mine called the next door. It's a a short film. He's in the next door. Yeah. Yep. He is the investigator 
who is talking to Does he the, have long hair in uh-huh. it? Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. he's talking to the missionaries. Okay. Yep. And, uh, that one's the, on Amazon Prime. That's on Amazon for Prime. Wants yep. to check it out. The next door. It's actually a good little short. It's a. Li- I don't know that I call it a short film. It's a little bit longer. Yeah, it's like a featurette. It's a featurette. It's, a featurette. it's right it's in between. Like a little over thirty minutes. It's a psychological neo noir thriller about um, about Mormon missionaries whose investigator goes missing. It's not a religious film, but it's a but deeply uh, spiritual. Like, no, it's not even spiritual. I'd say it's more in the identity. The uh, the religious identity that we that we hail from, I suppose. Um, but yeah, it's 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 kind of unlike anything I'd seen with missionaries. So I wanted to try something. So it's kind of a noir. Their investigator goes missing. They start looking for him. They uncover this world that they know nothing about. And yeah, it's like a short film. It's also on YouTube. It's on Vimeo. Um, it's good. It I've seen it. It's it's pretty dang clever. I was my jaw was on the floor by the by the end of that movie. Just <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. That's I was good. like, bravo. Well Thanks. done. Yep. There's definitely a twist in that one too. I love my twists. But um, anyway, Mason approached me and he said, hey, I, I've written this Western, this like like contemporary Western film that I want to do. I think I have some good connections. And he's, he's really well connected in the, at least in the local film industry here. Um, I think I can get some funding. Would you be interested? He had written it already. He just was inviting me to come on and direct. I said, yes. Um, we found... Quite a bit of funding, but f- interestingly, we actually weren't asking for enough funding for the investors to be comfortable. So we got we got really high, but we didn't get high enough. And they said, "Ah, uh, we're not sure." And they started to get kind of get cold feet. And we were like, "Well, we're, it's getting to the point where we need this locked in if we're going to film this this summer." And so about three months before August came, so I yeah I some somewhere thereabouts like March like in May, um, we decided to pull the plug on it. We were like, this isn't going to work. We'd already brought on a producer, so he was excited, but we still wanted to make something. Mason was like, well, do you still want to make a feature? I was like, yeah, I do. And he says, do you, do you have anything? Well, my friend, my best friend growing up, uh, and I had reconnected after my mission. I, I got home from my Latter-day Saint mission in Utah. I went back home to Tennessee, and we started brainstorming some um, – some film ideas and he presented this this really early version of cryo that i i didn't come up with and the twist is all mine and all of that stuff the the only thing about it that was that has stayed in the film is it's some scientists wake up from cryo sleep and have to survive you know and i looked into that and realized that that's not a that's not a highly original premise there's a lot of films that do this there's one where people wake up on a spaceship and they're they were in cryo sleep and they're like what do we do you know um chris pratt and uh yeah that's right what the, is it called the passengers, passengers. is a little was. bit like that but even our specific kind of whodunit style was has been done before but i loved the premise i was like that's fun and that's very shootable and originally they were supposed to wake up in a cabin up on top of a mountain and they're stuck up there and they're like how long have we been up here what's happened to the world and whatnot well, my friend Ben and I developed that a little bit, but we never really went anywhere with it. And this was like four, three or four years before my friend Mason approached me. So anyway, once Mason said this, I said, well, I do have this idea. I do have around. this idea and it's, 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 a, it's a great setup. So it's going to kind of write itself in terms of where do we want this to go, you know? And from the very beginning, I knew what I wanted my twist to be because okay. I, I had... I had watched some films and shows recently that did something kind of similar, and I just thought that's a really interesting way to to go up. I, I can't think of another way to employ my twist as effectively as I could with this, you know, this setup of they're they're in the cryo chambers and they're waking up, mm-hmm. and, and and so it sort of wrote itself from there. So did you start the writing process already knowing you were going to shoot this? Yeah. So. I think this is incredibly interesting. Um, My focus for the past six, seven years has been on writing novels. And one of the advantages, and it can work against you, is this idea that you can do whatever you want. It's just on the page. In fact, that, that changed our script in some ways for the better. We were having so much trouble finding a cabin. And then... We were like, well, what else could they wake up in? And we're like, well, what if they woke up underground? And then we thought about it, like, that's actually way better because they presumably could have been asleep for a thousand years. And there's no way a cabin's going to, like, survive that. 
and they were supposed to be going to different rooms in the cabin. And we went up and scouted like the UVU campus really? up in Heber and stuff. And, and so the moment we came up with the underground thing, we were like, well, where on earth would we find this? And so we were like, well, there's got to be some people here in Utah that have like bunkers or something. Maybe we could just come up with something. We looked up underground facility. The very first thing we saw was Provo, Utah, yeah, Center underground. Street. We were like, what is this? We walked over to the location from my house, you know, which was two or three blocks from Center Street. We went downstairs. We explored the space, probably against the rules because they were like, don't, don't trespass. And we just went around and looked around. Indie and then filmmaking. we found the guy who, who runs it down there, started talking to him. He loved that we were wanting to shoot stuff. He's this artist who the owner lives like in Indonesia or something, but he, he, he's there and allowed to design the space and get some free reign and books the, the, the tenants upstairs. And he, he was so like interested that we were doing this film and loves the arts and that I was a student that he was like, you know what, if you'll just book the Airbnb here for however long, two weeks or whatever that we shot 10 days or something, you just use any room you want. And then it was like, oh my gosh, we have a perfect location in the heart of Provo. We needed all these rooms because mm -hmm. it kind of parallels the, the, the game Clue. You know, you've got the kitchen or was it, in the, was it in the lab or was it in the study or the bedroom? And we needed all these rooms. And all of a sudden, we didn't have to change the script very much. We just, we changed our story to happen underground, to happen underground, to accommodate the necessities of just because we couldn't I find think, a cabin. I think it's better. It's way better. How long did it take you to pen the script? We were writing up right up until we right shot. up until, and in my opinion, it was slightly underbaked, yeah. and we knew it, and it was irritating. And to me, it's still slightly underbaked, but it's it's good enough that I'm really proud of the story and I love the twist. Um, we had a pass. We had a writer's room where, you know, a, a brain trust. People gave feedback. We did another pass. We really liked it. Were you, were you the key writer? Were you the sole writer? Was it, it was myself effort? and Mason. We wrote, okay. to, we wrote it together. He's a great writer. Um, so we, we, uh, we collaborated on this thing and we were both really happy with it. We both knew it's like, well, production's got to start. We got to go ahead and get this thing rolling, you know? Um, and if I'd have had another month, to just kind of work through some, now that I say that, some things really changed later too, that like we realized after we'd shot to get this twist to work, some things were just not quite right. But um, I kind of wish you could write a movie in reverse. Like you could go out and just film a bunch of stuff and cut it together and then write that way, which you, you can. I you know I, Terrence Malick, that's how he yeah, shoots that's kind of how film. he does well, it. Well, I mean, Sometimes he doesn't do it, it backwards. Works. He pens a script knowing that, hey, this will get us started, and then he goes and starts filming, and whatever he gets, he builds a story. I'm kind of, of filming that. something like that with my friend Lee Liston just for fun. Just every now and then we shoot a scene yeah. and we're stitching it together, and then we can fill in the fill in the scenes kind of backwards because because there's so much I realized about the story on Cryo that I was like, that would have been way cooler. And then we did shoot that. Um, and I just think, I think your script really, 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 really needs to work before you start shooting. Mm -hmm. Ours worked really well, but it, it could have been better. We could have spent more time with it. I've heard it said that you can, oh, let's see, how does the quote go? You can turn a good script into a great movie, Yeah. but you can't turn a bad script into a good movie. Yeah, that's right. Yep. I think we had a good script. I don't know if it's a great movie, but I think it's a good movie. Um, but uh, the flip side of this is some people write and write and write and write and write and revise and revise and revise and revise. And at a certain point, you're not going to come up with your best ideas till you just get on set, which is something that mm -hmm. I kind of found, you know, is like a lot of the cooler stuff. The pickups for Cryo, which you don't know the difference, but I bet I you anything, I didn't catch any. the better scenes... Are the pickups because you already know what you're doing. Because I had a year to think about it uh -huh. and edit and go, this is what we need. And the the more interesting visual shots are from the pickups, all of them. Interesting. Like the the thing with the engineer and we get real close and stuff. Yeah. That was all pickups, and that was that was me just having fun now rather than like, am I getting everything for the story? Because I could go back in and reinsert it and make it work, you know. So story's a tough one because the script is everything, and yet. It, you might change, you know? Yep, and you change everything. So this is a pretty good seg into talking about production in terms of storytelling. Um, but first I want to say, 
Barrett, the reason that I wanted to do this interview with you um, is because you possess something that I haven't seen in very many other um, aspiring filmmakers that run around in similar circles as us, you know, have gone to BYU and to different film programs. Um, I, I feel like there's a lot of what I'll call gear sluts. <laughs> and because, because the, the cinema is so tied to technology... Um, I feel like a lot of people get off track feeling like what makes Christopher Nolan a good filmmaker, what makes Peter Jackson a good, Steven Spielberg. These Cone guys Brothers. are great filmmakers yeah. because, because they shoot on Aries, they shoot on um, the best equipment ever. They have like all the, this amazing gear. And a lot of people believe, I think, that the better gear means a better product. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like you are one of the first filmmakers I've met who isn't jonesing for a red. No. Isn't fact, jonesing for like the, the best glass. It's that... funny too, because people people really crap on Nolan a lot too. And I, I I understand he's not perfect, but I like him. I think his films sell. And that's what I'm most interested in, is kind of finding a, a fine line between um, marketability and, and artistic. Christopher you know, Nolan has certainly value. walked yeah. that line pretty yeah. well. He's, there's a lot of stuff that is kind of not not particularly deep about his stuff, but it's a lot of fun. And I don't mind emulating him in some of my work. But you're right about one thing. I actually hardly ever care what we're shooting on, the lenses. I usually leave that up to the DP. And the reason that cryo looks so good, I do pick the angles and the shots, and there's things mm -hmm. I want to say. Because that's story. That's right. There's, which is, there's which is where I'm going with this, yes, by the exactly. way, Barrett. Because but, I think a lot of that technology, the gear can get in the way because... You could take a novice and hand them a red and it'll still look like crap. And right. and even if it looks good, telling a story is way harder than lighting a scene. Sorry, DPs out there. Telling a story is, is way harder. Well, it's also why you ever so many people are interested. You 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 pick the best. I mean, um, the DP that I worked with on Cryo, Roman Alevi, is phenomenal. You know, and like I could totally trust him with the lighting and uh -huh. the, the look of the thing. And it, it makes it easy to work with too, because they learn to trust you with the story and you trust them with the look and you don't fixate over it. I mean, I, I know there's some kind of auteurish maybe pride in a director wanting total control over the image and, and to a lot of great directors credit when they do, sometimes it's phenomenal, you know, and, and they're juggling all these things, but you're right. If, if, if the story is sacrificed, because something just looks really cool and sexy, like. Well, and I, I actually think uh, the inverse happens. I think a lot of people believe that the reason they're not out there telling stories is because they can't afford special yeah, gear. That's true. And too. my my comeback is always, if you have a story that you actually believe in, you'll raise money. Mm -hmm. You'll yeah, rent. Right. By the way. Christopher Nolan doesn't own the IMAX cameras. You're right. You actually bring up on. a good point. He, I mean, I he won't, rents I won't, them when he knows he has a good that's story. Right. I won't shoot on anything less than a red or an airy or, right. or a black magic. But you're not but afraid not, to rent it because right, you know you're going right. to do something like, with yeah, it. Yeah, I'll rent it if the story's good and it's it's you know that's just that's just bare minimum. You got to shoot on something industry standard. Um, the the you're right about this. The harder thing is having something to say. I mean. Yep. I could shoot every weekend. I know I could find people to come shoot with me all the time. But what would we be shooting? We'd just be shooting and, like grass and stuff. You know what I mean? It's and like therein lies the difficulty of yeah, storytelling. You gotta have something to say. Um, so I'm I'm curious to know, as a storyteller, how do you how do you approach a scene? How do you know how to shoot it? What do you just trust your gut? Do you feel like you've just been doing it long enough that you know how to block a scene oh, out? That's a great question. Or do you have some strategies for how yes. you, you like convey meaning? Yeah. From the shot. Because okay, well, it's actually a lot harder than most people think. At the beginning of film school, before I took any real classes, I just trusted my gut. Like the next door is a great example of just not knowing anything and just filming and emulating what you've seen other people well, do. Well, and that's you know? a good thing about having grown up in a media age where we've watched so many movies yes. is it's there's some there's some And everybody actually speaks this language, you know. Uh -huh. it, even not good knowing film. Right. Just hits the audience. You know whether, whether they... a push or not a push is going to affect you. And if you've been paying attention, you, maybe you don't know that if you're not a filmmaker, but it will affect you. Yeah. Therefore, it's in there. And if you're a filmmaker, you just kind of feel when to do it or not. However, I, I really credit my, 
my directing professors, particularly Tom Russell and Jeff Parkin, for teaching me a lot of technique and a lot of things that, um, that I actually sometimes get so lost in the story or the cool concept or the world or the music. I'm big on the music. I, I lean more towards sound and music than necessarily visuals, you know. Um, whereas a lot of filmmakers more, they, they, they love the different, the different lenses and the different shots and whatnot. And I have to work really hard to, to be conscious of that. Um, because for me, if the oral component, yeah, is just... for well, the, the oral component. And then also like, uh, if, if something's happening on screen, I'm, I've never really been paying attention to the lens. I'm just like, there it is. There's the action, you know, like I'm, mm-hmm. I can follow this. Right. Even though I know those things are just as important and, and I, I do know them now. I just mean, my, my base level of, of kind of where I needed to grow and learn in film school. Um, but you know, Jeff Parkin's class, my, my, uh, the, the, um, the cinematography slash directing class was phenomenal where you learn a, a ton about blocking and, um, you know, the visual elements like rhythm and color and depth and all of these different things that draw the eye and that the eye is, constantly processing lots of stuff and almost looking at it like an equation. It's like, okay, what do we need the, the viewer to get out of this shot? We did this exercise where you would, you would, this is just funny. This is probably my best performing thing on my, on my non-film YouTube channel, my just personal YouTube uh-huh. channel. I, I recreated a scene from American Psycho. It's the business card scene. And it like, it's done really well, you know, like lots of people are commenting and I'm like, is this what I want to be known for? You know, and it's, it's, it's but, okay. But the point is you break down every single shot and you write, what is this shot about? And that was really interesting. It's like, no, not what is this shot? What is this shot about and what's it saying and how does it cut with the, the shots before and after it? And so I, I've learned to do more coverage, but actually when I first did The Next Door, um, I don't do a whole lot of coverage. I usually think it out from start to finish beforehand. And if I can, I actually like to go to the space and shoot the whole movie in photographs before I ever start filming. That's what we did for the next door. The whole movies was done in in photos with the lenses and everything because I, because I don't know if unless I'm feeling it and looking at it, right. If it's like, Oh, do you want this? I mean, I can tell you if I wanted it as a, as a wide medium or close up, but like, Oh, you know, do we want this on a 50 or 35? I'm like, I, I, I don't know. Like I need to go see it. And storyboards don't help anything because for me, I look at a storyboard and I'm like, yeah, that, that'd be cool if it looked just like this, maybe if we were animating it. But once we get on set, it's going to be different. So <clears throat> that saves a ton of time. That's how yeah. we went so fast. Well, and you brought up animation and the reason most people don't, I don't know how familiar people are with animation, but it is all done storyboarded first. They yeah. do animatics that are even yeah. like. Animatics are great. And the reason being that animation is so labor intense that by the time you're animating, you better have your story right. Yeah, that's right. So they build it on paper yeah. first. And animatics, I can see being really valuable. And it's not, I don't mean to bash storyboarding. I would just rather photoboard, which is, and if I you totally can, get, get in the space, and use the lens. Animation works because, again, they're yeah. amazing artists and yeah. they can literally put anything in front of the lens that's that right. you want. Film isn't necessarily always that way, right? And and I think to the credit of this worked better in the next door when I kind of didn't know what I didn't know. Um, now I'm learning to shoot more coverage, just a little bit, d- just in case because I don't know what's going to happen in the edit, and it may not edit. Like I might have edited the film in my mind and know the shots and stuff because I don't I don't pick a lot of shots. You know, yeah. I've worked with a, a lot of student directors that's just like they put like twenty shots in a scene, and I'm like. Are you gonna Do you really need them? all these? You know, well, are like, you even going to use them? That's right. And They're just doing it to be safe. It's like, so, well, we need our master, we need our close-ups, and we need this and that. Yep. And it's like sometimes you can get the whole scene. We, we, we did this in cryo, and it, it sometimes bit us in the butt, and sometimes it worked really well. Where it's like for time constraints, we need to do this all in a wide. How are we going to make the blocking interesting? So one of these is yep. where like they're, they're circling this table, and you put them in different space. I love space. that scene. And I copied. I watched a video essay on... on um, Kurosawa and like how he would uh-huh. block a scene. I was like, I'm just going to try to copy that to the best of my ability. <laughs> so, and I just realized that there's, there's going to be some people listening that don't necessarily know what this term coverage 
what that means. What we mean by coverage is, uh, you know, you don't just run a scene once like in a play. Like you're right. going to run it in a wide, what, what we call a master, which is where you run the scene beginning to end, single shot, wide, capture all the action. And then you punch in and you might do the entire scene on one character. Right. Do the entire scene again on another character. Now I've covered the scene yeah. three times it. in that example. Exactly. You're covering so in, it in different, different angles so that you have plenty to cut to in your edit. So when Barrett says he doesn't do a ton of coverage, uh, I think a lot of novice filmmakers, and, and it is scary. It's scary to get into the editing room and be like oh my gosh we don't uh, like i i've edited edited myself into a corner yes that's the that's and that's so sometimes the mistake i make they'll run masters the whole yeah. way they're like yep. and that is incredibly time consuming yeah. and i think anyone who shot a feature knows you can't do masters every shot and a master is seen beginning to end capture all the action well my problem on cryo was sometimes we were so strapped for time i might only be able to get a master yeah and so then you have to really rethink the scene. It's like, how can you make this scene interesting? We, we, we shaved one scene down to its bare bones. It's when they're having kind of the council in the room and they're deciding, you know, he puts the radios down and he's like, where are these? That's only in two shots. That's one shot of the three of them uh -huh. behind the two and then one of the two from the side. That's it. You could shoot that whole scene with uh -huh. covering you could, everyone. You could, and you could get crazy coverage. I mean, I think of movies like the Jason Bourne movies yeah. where the, the editing is like, does not even every second, it's like every 10 frames yeah. they cut. That's right. And to cut that much, you have to have crazy coverage. And in a perfect world, that would be, I mean, I, it's not that I don't want to shoot coverage. There was, there was kind of a, there's kind of a toss up. And I, I don't like, I, I'm maybe used to be this way when I was just stupid and before film school and like, yeah, you know, I don't need coverage, you know, uh -huh. like sometimes I just can't. So right. I have to think of so, a way for it to be effective enough. I, I love this as a storyteller because I want to get inside your brain of what's that, what, what is that like? Because I also know that there, I've met student filmmakers who just throw the clock out the window and they're like, fine, we'll be here till 4 a.m. Because or, I want to get the coverage I want. Well, and, and sometimes you got to do that. Like for the scene at the very end between the three of them, you know, when yeah. there's kind of a big twist, we shot that till three in the morning, uh -huh. but we let everybody go home who, who, who wanted to go home and we all wanted to stay because it was an important scene. Oh, that's Them cool. all sitting around and talking about stuff is kind of a beat to get you to the next thing. This scene was a lot of it's, acting and it's a big reveal. It's building up to the climax. And I was like, are you guys good if we just go like five hours over? But it was quiet. It was the middle of the night and we all were having a lot of fun doing it. Oh, that's interesting. And that was way better, right? Sometimes you, you do that. So as a storyteller, how do you, how do, first, how do you feel? And then how do you know when to say, we've only got so much time? How it's do we- It's hard to put into words. I, I, I don't know. I mean, for me, it's- is this, yeah, I guess you got to ask, is this an important moment? Okay, well, let me give you an example. I'm not going to name this person, but we both, there's a filmmaker we both know. And, um, and I, I'm, I'm sure he's seriously improved since this point. But, um, but I was working on his student film. And this was not an instance of, oh, I'm going to keep everyone here all night. This was an instance of, I have 20 shots that I want to get. And they're all so important. Gosh darn it, they're just so important to the film. And... Sometimes that's the case, but a lot of times, no, they're not. I mean, you, you can consolidate. And, and then once you start to consolidate shots and you're forced to be creative, then you have some really cool stuff. I mean, mm -hmm. that, that thing of them walk, oops, that thing of them walking around the table, right? In, in cryo, yeah. that's because we were low on time. And so it's like, it becomes a fun, cool, interesting moment rather than just, you know, looking around at, at the different characters. And I've, I, that's not because I'm so fun and, and interesting creative. It's because I was forced to be creative because I was running out of time. So I think sometimes consolidating shots to a better shot or better blocking, you know, or, or working around that can be, can, can be actually useful. be an advantage. It can to be an advantage. Story. You don't always want to do that, but you've got to be, you've got to have such a perfect plan and then also know be so willing change. to throw the plan out if you have to, right? This filmmaker wasn't willing to throw out the plan. And in my opinion, the, the shots were not, all vital that some of them could. So I even, I was, I was one of the ADs. And so I started, um, for those listening, AD is assistant director. So I was assisting him trying to keep things on, on schedule and order. I started looking at the shot list and coming up with ideas or solutions like, Hey man, you could try this. It's up to you, you know, but like, um, what the director says goes. And so if he wanted to try to fit them all in, then that was totally his prerogative. Well, 
it became pretty clear we, it was not possible to get all those. Before the sun went down, we were not going to get And you were relying shots. on sun for... We were relying on sun. It was all outside. And not only that, we weren't going to get back to this location. So you had a hard out. myself and the other AD approached this, this director and said, please, like, we're telling you, please tell me, just, just pick five. Like we're going to reorder it and you're right. They're all important. But if you had to only pick five, what would be the top? And I'm going to move those to the top of the list. And he was like, no, no, they're, they're all important, man. They're all, you know, I got, I got to get it all, get it, get it all. And it was a little bit frustrating because it was not possible. We could not possibly get all these shots. So what happened? Well, we got five shots and they weren't the five that were important. It was like the doorknob and the, you know, the, 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 the wide of two people talking. And, and sure enough, the sun went down and this director was like, no, you know, like, what am I going to do? You know? And, and, and I was just, I was a little bit disappointed because if he had prioritized at least the ones that he had to get, he could have come up with something. To get for story. When you say had to get, you're talking get for story. Get for the story. To be able to tell the story. Let's say it's, it's fundamental to a story that, you know, the main character gets shot in the arm with the gun and then his arm's broken the rest of the film. Or, you know, his arm's yeah. in a wound. And, and you shoot everything and you shoot the cool action sequence and you don't get around to the gunshot you know, and his arm getting hit. Now all of a sudden your, your character's got a broken arm and you don't have any way to explain it. That's more important than the really cool stunt or the, uh -huh. you know, the fight sequence or whatever. If, if you had to get one thing, get the bad guy grabbing the gun, shooting him in the arm. Cause that's, cause like, that's going to have, that's going to have down effects. the line right. of, of shooting yep. the film. Yep. Or it, it might be a character moment. If it's a reconciliation between two characters and you've shot everything, but you rushed it you know, the final hug between father and son, you got one shot of it and it's out of focus. And it's like, you get in the editing room. It's like, well, that's all we got guys. Cause you know, we ran out of time. Oh, but, but isn't it great that, you know, we got the, the really cool, you know, running around the corner and I'm almost there to see dad sequence. It's, it, you could cut that you out. You could cut that and the story would still stand. Well, and sometimes you shoot all that and then you do cut it. Cause you're yeah. like, you know what? This is way better without that. Let's just get the hug, you know? And so, uh -huh. so, that's interesting. That's, that's maybe in your shot lists, you know, it's important to, to know what are the big story elements. What are but the I, story beats? I think that... going into it, it's just, you just kind of know. It's like, okay, if I have to get something from scene five, it's this. If scene five, if I have 10 shots and it's coming down to it, I have to pick one shot. This is the shot from this scene five I really, really need. I'm going to interrupt this interview right here and first and foremost, apologize. Um, but, uh, my conversation with Barrett went on a lot longer than expected and it was so engaging and interesting and I enjoyed it so much that we ended up talking close to two hours. So I've decided that it's probably best to divide this one up into two episodes. Um, and this will wrap up part one of my interview with indie filmmaker Barrett Bergen about his film Cryo. You can catch part two of this interview in next week's episode.